If I told you what that what I put them lads through, you wouldn't believe it. Curling has to be the most difficult, eye-hurting sport I've ever witnessed. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been described as the bridesmaids of Harlan, but today we got married. Oh, there's no rules. This guy just grabbed the ball, threw it up in the air, and then hit it. But, both of Harlan, I'd like to thank you, the people of Wexford, who stuck with us through taking pace. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Hurling Podcast. This week's guest needs no introduction. Enjoy our episode with the brother. So Larry, in the league quarterfinal in 96, you actually got dropped. It was, I think it was again Galway. Remember he put Damien Fitzhenry out wing back? How did you feel about that now? Is your specialist position sticking a goalie and wing back? Yeah, I, I thought he was actually I thought it was April Fool actually first of April when he told me really <laughs> I thought he was only joking and do you think he was at, at the start and then he decided <laughs> this lad thinks I'm joking well I tell you we, we actually played a 15 against 15 and I went on to the B team and he played the A team again the B team so there was looks upon everyone when they seen Larry O going onto the B panel only when I got stuck into a few lads, then Griffin came over and he said, look at Larry, I know you're a bit annoyed, but he says, just calm down a bit. It's okay, it's not the end of the world. I said, that fucking is to me, Liam. <laughs> <laughs> I did say to him before I left training, I said, it's the last time you'll ever, ever hand me a, a, a subs jersey. Really? And would you believe it, after the All-Ireland, after the All-Ireland, one thing he whispered in my ear, remember you said you, you'll never wear a extra jersey, a subs jersey again? I'd say he thought that was a master stroke dropping you then for that. Yeah, well, to me it was. It was kicking the backside really, to be honest, you know. These le- young lads getting run away, uh, getting carried away with themselves, you know, thinking that they have it all, know it all and do it all. So, a lot of people's minds throughout the year anyway, you know, to let guys know that they're not, they're not rock solid on the team. So he was, he was teaching everyone a lesson around the, around the, around the, the panel itself in general. The story I heard about Damien going wing back was for his own fitness at the time. And that and that Griffin kind of wanted everyone to be able to play everywhere. Yeah, well, that was, that, that was a plan, but it, he, why did he leave off Gerald Kush or someone else? Why was it me? <laughs> I'd say maybe it was to maybe prove a point to Damien as well. Listen, you're a goalkeeper. Yeah, well, he was. Remember, he came on Joe Rabbit that day, actually. Did he get a roasting, did he? He did. I think they took him off after so, so they took him off altogether actually. And Seamus Kavanagh played a goal. He played quite well actually, Seamus Kavanagh. Are you you still in contact with Tom Hanks? He writes to me every Christmas. He sends me a lovely Christmas present every year. <laughs> I'm gonna sh- share the, screen, the the picture up on the screen. Can you, can you see that? Yes, I can. Wow. For those listening, it'll be it's, it's a picture of the great Larry O. I assume that's Curclaw Beach, is it, Larry? It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, was a, there was a guy in Wexford, Paddy Gore, who had a pub in Wexford. And he, what do you call it, uh, he invited me out to meet Tom Hanks because he was in charge of the FCA, the Army group, that were participating out there with him. So he asked me, would I be interested in presenting with a hurl in a jersey? I had no issue whatsoever, so himself and Steven Spielberg, would you believe us, were there when we presented to him, so... He was quite. He was quite delighted. Actually, he did see. He did come across a game of hurling in the past. He says, but he didn't realise that 
it was only Ireland that they played hurling in. So he, he said it was fantastic to to know that Wexford had just won the All Ireland. You know, he, he said he reminds him the likes of Brazil winning the World Cup in soccer and the way, the way countries celebrate in terms of victory. You know, so he said hurling must be something sweet to win. And I said it surely is when you're when you're living in Ireland. He says and you don't win it that often. I says it's it's a great memory to have and a great great achievement to achieve. This was '97, was it? Yeah. I remember when I went up and I actually gave him the hurling ball and he sort of looked at it and he said, what am I meant to do with this? And I said, run for us, run, I said to him. <laughs> was he any good? He wasn't too bad, yeah. He tapped it along. Now, he, he struggled once or twice when he threw it up to strike the ball, all right. But he, he, I asked him, he said, how good are you? And I said, I said, pick an area. So he actually picked up a bunker that had been blown up earlier on in the day. And he says, can you get into that bunker? No problem. 70 yards straight into the middle of the bunker. <laughs> I told him if he's ever stuck for a backup in the future, I said, just give me a shout. I'm ready to go to Hollywood any day. <laughs> Is that what the Christmas cards are about? He actually wrote a lovely letter to me, actually, a lovely photograph and a letter, actually. The letter came a couple of days after he had arrived back home and he sent the letter all the way home to Ireland. Larry O'Gorman Wexford was written on it. But it found its way to his rightful owner. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got it. I have it at home now and I have the photographs. I've got a load of photographs taken. It's not only that one, I have seven or eight different photographs that were taken, which is lovely to have. You know, it's, it's nice. You know, yeah. this, is, this comes, this is all the little bonuses and, and the little bit extras that you get after winning, you know, becoming a little bit maybe famous for a while when you win in Ireland. You know, there's always pros and cons for it, you know. So we got on very well overall with us in terms of going out and getting to meet different people and stuff. So. Yeah, you know, you get a great opportunity to go out to, to do presentations of medals and go and meet people and greet people and call to see old people that, you know, that, that maybe never got a chance to go to the games and stuff like that. So they're all great things to meet when you go into a house and it's decorated with Wexford colours and flags and all. It's just beautiful the way it hits home, really, just to know not only me, but the team in general, what it meant. What it meant to win in the All-Ireland, what it meant to the people that couldn't get there, what it meant to the people that have... I've been starved of success over a number of years and then the young generation of supporters, you know, they witnessed with us. They travel to the matches, but they witnessed everything to the forefront, you know. They, they really enjoyed their journey as much as we did ours. To uh, ease the tension in the dressing room before the final, Griffin asked you to tell a few jokes, did he? Yeah. <laughs> I can't see him here now. <laughs> and it was just some funny jokes in general, that's all, you know. I, I think... Uh, I think maybe when we left the hotel in the Morgan Park Hotel, I think uh, that's when things started getting a bit hot in the bus, you know. I think the pressure of the players was starting to, you could see it building up among fellas and the tension was building up and the crowd was also building up on the, on the journey in. So just for me to have a look around the bus, I know other guys were doing the same. You could see that players were sort of, you know, you could see the tension building up on them. So you need something inside just to, to relax. And I sort of thrived on that. I didn't really mind it. I love that. I I love that type of atmosphere. I don't know. I felt if, if I went drove in with the curtains pulled on the bus, I'd be lost going into Crow Park. So I need to soak that in. You know, other players are a little bit different. They zoom in differently and go into their own self-conscious mind and try and rehearse or rephrase things in their mind that might get them out of, out of a tough position if they do have the, get a bit of a panic attack before. And you had a nice word for Mary Robinson as well, then. That's right. Good old Mary, you know, is queuing up and lining up waiting for Mary to come along and she sort of just looked up and smiled and wished me all the best. And I said, that's a lovely dress you wear, Mary. <laughs> Very much for that. I said, it's a pleasure. And Liam Dunn looked out the corner of his eyes and said, Jesus Christ, what are you? <laughs> <laughs>
No, he, he knew and we sort of all knew in general. Like, I mean, I think it all came from, to be honest though, from the management team with Rory and Seamus Barron and, and Liam. The way we had progressed through the whole year was all about heavy training, heavy focus, all this sports psychology that we had built within our own heads in terms of, you know, staying focused, no panicking, you know, don't get frustrated or whatever. Liam was able to be amnest with that as well and he found certain players like Tom Dempsey or, or maybe myself or Larry Murphy to have a bit of a crack or a bit of a banter as well. And that sort of eased a lot of pressure off our lads. And, you know, even though the training was tough, very, very tough at times, he was able to come in and say a few jokes or, or say something funny in training and whatever. So all that hard training that you put into in, in that night would be um, more or less eased off a small bit, you know, to say, right, lads, we'll have tomorrow night off or we might want a picnic next next training session or something like that. So, it was all something different. Every night you went training was different and hard but tough. But I think our, our aim was, our goal was maybe to get to an all-around final, you know, and to win it was just, was just something unbelievable. Would you have two under-21 Lancer medals in 86 and 87? Yes, that's right. Yeah, we played, we played Cork. I had a minor in 85. We actually played Cork in 85 in the minor final. That's the that's last right. time since 2019. That's right. Over the years, we'd always have good hurling teams coming through, but we never really brought any kind of success. And if you look at the likes of Kilkenny and Galway and Cork and these teams, they have, they have bundles of All-Irelands underage, so you can understand why they're always competing at the top level when it comes to All-Ireland finals. We show up every five or six or eight year into a Leinster final, and we're probably the very same when it comes to uh, senior hurling All-Irelands semifinals or finals. We're lucky in a sense. The back door came in 97, it certainly has progressed hurling in the weaker counties, but it also helped teams that have were nearly there, the nearly teams. Maybe like us on a number of occasions where we nearly won, we nearly achieved something. And sort of brought us to a level with the back to system come in. We'd often wonder if that had come in 92 or 93, would we have had, had any extra titles in our bag? You know, because mm-hmm. we're all lucky on occasions where we lost out some big games to maybe to DJ Super, 12 steps, kicking the ball into the net and... Maybe a couple of sending offs that went against us as well when we were maybe up, up with the best teams there. So we sort of lost out on a couple of big chances in terms of a bit more silverware. Just there's very, very few men in Wexford would have minor Leinster, under 21 Leinster, and senior Leinster. Yes, it's nice. Yeah. Actually, I, I got, we got beaten in the Leinster final under 14 as well in, in, in Crow Park. I think it was 1981. This is. Pre Tony Farcell days, is it? Yes, it was. It only went as far as the Leinster final, and I was actually playing cornerback all year. And uh, Paul Bowen from Inscarty got belt of a hurling ball in the eye, so he missed out on the final. So they asked me would I be interested in the goal for the final, and I said, "Yeah, no problem. Once I get a jersey, I'll go in anywhere." It was probably the worst thing I ever did. I laid six goals in that day. Oh God! But it was an honour to play. It was an honour to play up there. But I said I'll never play here again. I said, especially in goal, anyway. Liam Dunn would have been on those teams as well, would he? Yes, Liam Dunn and Gerard Cush, Shawnee Flood. We had a fantastic minor team. I must say, we had uh, Vinnie Murphy from Vernes was a top-class hurler. Vinnie Reddy from Clabon, Jay Codd, James Bulger from Marcestown, Phil Callahan from Timon, Eamon Sinnott was on it. Jeez, we had some top-class hurlers. I, I, I'm not quite sure whether we, why we didn't want to win something greater after that. But then again, as I say, when you go back and look at the records of teams competing in high-class colleges, especially in Cork and Limerick and 
Galway and Kilkenny, Cairns College, like I mean, they were so so successful over years. And if you go back and look at the history of Kilkenny hurling teams, the majority of them actually went to Cairns College. It is a strange to look at it when I think I think Wexford clubs won Leinster eighty five to eighty nine. I think we win under twenty one eighty six and eighty seven, and then it just doesn't translate to the senior intercounty team till ninety six. Yeah, I, I I think sometimes it's mainly down to. When, you, when I joined onto the Cedar panel, you would have had the likes of Jimmy Hulan and John Conran, Eamon Cleary, Sack Welch, Ted Morrissey was there. All these guys were there, you know, and they had been there for, for five or six years or seven years prior to that. So they would have been in the same boat as we would have been five or seven years into our senior career that we, we struggled to win any kind of silverware. And I know we got to a league final in 91, 92. Then we got to a couple of Leinster finals, but sure. We just struggled to find a way to win whatever it was. We, we, we just, I personally thought if some of the lads actually thought it was okay, it's great to be in a final, but I couldn't accept that. I, I just wanted to win all the time, especially when you're playing the likes of Kilkenny, these lads, your, your neighbours. You've been told for so many years by the great Ned Wheeler and Ned Colfin, these guys always told me, you know, they, they used to love beating Kilkenny lads, you know. So we got a little bit of minor and under 21 into us beating but when it came to senior level we, we sort of lost our way for a number of years until this good structure came not saying it wasn't there prior to that but there was a good structure of hurling came into into Wexford the style of hurling was changing throughout Ireland even if you look at Clare in 95 and after that I think the whole thing just took off and there was teams around Ireland were doing exactly what all top teams were doing so the balance was getting closer but I think the experience of teams winning always had one up on you when it comes to winning big games. Um, I was reading an article there yesterday and you were saying that uh, you reckon Griffin, he needed to reform you. Yeah, a little bit. You know, sometimes in life when you're a little run loose and you're, you're a little bit mad in your own head, sometimes you need someone to come in and tell you to calm down and relax and do the simple things right in life. So it's not only on the hurling field, but when you're out there and in life and you're a little bit wild card or a wild boko as my father used to call me he said you need to calm down and relax and see where you're going in your life so i think liam griffin done the very same in terms of hurling career with me was more or less able to sit you down and talk to you and ask you what do you really want in hurling what do you really want out of it and then after that then he always says well here's a plan of what you need to do so it was all about being total focused no catching around being 100% committed to the cause and he always knew I had it within me but he just felt as if there was a lot of strings hanging on me that there was a lot of people using them strings to pull me in different directions so he wanted to really get a grip on it and make sure that I was being solid within, my, within, within myself that I was able to do exactly what I wanted to do even though we spoke about it sometimes you, you tell fibs to guys that you don't you don't go out you don't drink you don't mess around and behind it all you do so You'll get caught out eventually. Was it hard for you to change your lifestyle like that? Uh, not really, no, to be honest. Not really. Eventually, when I, when I, when I see when Liam came in and things came in and, and things were planned out properly in terms of, you know, there's something good happening here. You know, there's something good in life. It's like when you get a good job and you feel respected in your job and you feel that there's a, a good reward in terms of payment and there's a good way of setting your st uh, stance in life that you're, you're prepared to look all down and give it a good shot. To me, as I said, like I mean, I had moved out of my house when I was 18 or 19 years of age, so I was out living on my own for 
a number of years in terms of a small apartment that I had. So I was well able to cook. I was well able to iron. I was able to do all the basic things myself. But uh, when it came to hurling, I just felt as if I needed maybe a father figure in terms of hurling when you're in the hurling ground or in the hurling training zone, that you need someone there to be with you. So there's many a nights I actually went home one empty room as well, you know, so sometimes you feel a little bit upstairs that you're, that you're, you're a little bit lost. It was probably all my own fault and I just felt as if I wanted to move out of the house and be the big man that I thought I was. So you know, eventually you, you learn from that and you, you meet great people and people help you along the line and all of a sudden then you learn about about how, how to save for a mortgage and go on about your own personal life and try and keep it as clean and healthy as possible. And would that have started in 95 when Liam took over or was it more so in 96 when he kind of got, got to know you and everybody else did it better? When we, we first came in, he, he, he knew me as a good character or whatever, but sometimes he says, Larry, sometimes uh, being too much of a smart arse can't can be good for you. But being a funny character can be very good for you. So he says, be careful of what you're saying you know, and say the things right and do the things right. He says, people will appreciate you. So I found out a jeering or slagging someone Sometimes you might be saying the wrong things or doing it in the wrong way. So that sort of dressed me up early quick or whatever. And I used to phone him and ring him and talk to him. And after training, he'd always come over and put his arm around me. He'd always say, how are you keeping? Everything all right? You're looking after yourself? Are you feeding yourself well? You know, are you able to pay your rent and stuff like this? So all little things like that mattered mostly to me because I found it difficult to talk to my own father about it. You know, to go back home and say to my father like that, he said, I told you. You wouldn't listen to me. There was no need to move out. I wanted you to be with us. And, you know, you wanted to move out yourself. You wanted to be the big guy. So it happens in life and guys are doing it today every day. It's happened every day. You know, but back then when you're sort of 87, 88 and you start moving out of home. So it's a bit quite young, 18 or 19. So it was a little bit into the wilderness. So I learned this. And of course, as I said, Liam Griffin was sort of a big guidance to me when it came in because he was explaining in general to me and other players I felt as if, you know, there's, life is really important when you sort of sit back and look at us. So there's been a lot of talk about the influence that Neve Fitzpatrick had as psychologist when she came in in 96. Would she have also worked on those kind of areas? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had a couple of meetings with her, you know. And, uh, as I said, there was a couple of guys that were gassers and messers and, you know, they like to have a bit of fun and a bit of crack. But when you went to a meeting with Neve, you know, she, she'd straighten her head out really quick, you know. They just say, look, this is not a fun game anymore. This is a serious game. If you want to take it serious, you do the things right serious. You know, you, you don't hold back on what you've been asked to do and you do it the way Mr. Griffin and myself want you to do. So she was brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. And I think after a couple of meetings that I spent with her, myself and Larry Murphy went to meet her. And she said, look at Larry. Larry will be with me for a half an hour. So I'll see you next. No problem. I say after 10 minutes, I had finished up with her. And I said, is that quick? Is that quick? And she goes, yeah, Larry. Be quite honest, she says, you're a born winner. I just know you're a born winner. And I was chuffed. I was absolutely delighted leaving the meeting. She just asked me simple things. What do I want for Wexford? What do I want for myself? Where's your aims? What do you want for uh, your team in general? And what would you do to win in Ireland? And stuff like that, that carried out through the whole year. She said, exactly. You're the man exactly that I love to speak to. She says, go and send other Larry in and finish with you. <laughs> God, you must have really gone out with uh, feeling on cloud nine there. Yeah, absolutely. I was buzzing from that. And I think from the time she came in, 
I think that's when, you know, that meeting, when that meeting was over, I couldn't wait to go train. I couldn't wait. Yeah. I, was, I couldn't wait to be happy among the guys. I couldn't wait to be, you know, be funny with them and have a bit of banter and stuff like that with them. I just felt as if this is it. I'm ready to go. But you could see the change in players right throughout all this. More these these little meetings, meetings were happening with Neve and Liam or whatever. The better we were getting, the stronger we were getting. You know, this this inner belief that to say, yeah, we we can beat Kilkenny, we can beat anyone. It's all up here in our own mind. If we don't let that get stronger in our heads, we will fail. But this is what happened, and this is exactly what Neve was doing. Every time, every time we had a meeting with her, it was all positive, all positive things that were going on in your mind. And every time we, we won the game, when we beat Kilkenny, she says, there you go. I explained it to you in detail. Liam is the very same. He said the very same. Go out and do exactly what you're asked, be, asked to do. And nothing will ever fail. And we were getting results after results. And it got stronger and better. People often asked us, where did that inner belief come from? And it has to come from someone that's trying to get you right upstairs in terms of being prepared, being organized, being focused. No pressure when you make a mistake. All these little things that mattered. You know, there's times that I made mistakes in games and prior to me even then be there, you make a mistake, you lose. And I heard lads in the dressing room after saying, so what? So look at, there's always next year. Uh, we weren't good enough. So we'll never beat Kilkenny. Why are we going up to take these guys on? We've no hope of beating them. This, I, I felt over time that this was in the dressing room. Not with everyone, but some people. And we'd often argue with it. And if we got beaten, then so where are we going tonight? Where's the pub? Where are we going to join up for, for a few drinks for a few days? But I just felt, no, it has to stop. And something has to change. And of course, when Liam came in and Seamus and Rory and all the backroom team, team everyone's mind changed. Their mindset changed very, very quickly. 95 was a little bit hard to take because we thought we were in a good position. Liam also thought he had us in a good position, but he felt as if he had to go a little bit deeper himself and work a little bit harder in terms of getting a little bit more out of players. Maybe players that I might notice or other players might notice, but they might notice that there's a weakness in player that a player might throw in the towel quicker than normally. A guy might chase a guy. A guy might hassle a guy. We wouldn't notice it, but they would notice it. They were getting stats. I think it was Sean O'Leary was doing all the stats. But they were getting all the feedback. In terms of individual players, how many clearances Larry O did, how many catches Liam Dunn got, and stuff. And this was all adding up. You know, so this was something that you say, right, if I'm on the record book every time I come into a training room, I want to make sure that my name is going up to the top of the list because if you start slipping down to number 20 or 21, you feel as if you'll be handed that number on your back when it comes to picking the team. There was something that was said, uh, it was on the reeling in the ears that the Wexford GA did a few weeks back. Uh, I think Liam Griffin had mentioned it where they want, or Wexford wanted to be known as Ireland's best hookers or that team wanted to be known as Ireland's best hookers. You know, it is a joke, but realistically meaning the team that who can block the most out there. And Liam gave the stat that there was no game where Wexford didn't double the amount of hooks and blocks that any that the team they were playing did. Is that is that linking up with the, the psychology of it, of not letting stuff go and the stats being taken and you know you have to get X amount of hooks and blocks in a game. 100% Gary, you're 100% right. Exactly, exactly what you just said. We went to training. We, we done this in little groups of in training where you might have four little cones around where you might have six or eight guys in the round of cones and every time someone has to get the ball you have to strike and you have to get in and hook and block. So it was a little, 
sort of a dogfight with lads for the numbers of times. And then they give you a break and then they get back into it again. So it was constantly with us every time we go training. So it was, it was up here, you know, he says, you can do it, you can do it. So then he used to spread the cones out a bit further and make it harder that we have to chase a guy a bit further. So he said, never give up the chase, never give up the chase. And if you did, he would call you. He said, Larry, you rang 10 yards and you give up chasing him. Why'd you do that? And I might say, I was tired or I, I knew I couldn't catch him. He said, well, that's a fail. That's a fail. And I don't want that. We don't want that. So he kept you on your toes all the time. You know, he, he sort of pressurized you into keeping it up all the time, keeping the intensity up all the time. And I'm talking about, the intensity that I'm talking about is what was happening in training was happening in your head when you were going home after training. It was happening in the morning when you wake up to have your porridge and your cup of tea before you head off to work. The intensity was still in your mind. And then when you go training, it was constantly in your mind, constantly focused in your mind that this intensity has to keep up, you know. You can do it. You can do it at ease, but you feel... It's like my brother-in-law told me, he's a bit of a sprinter. He says every time he was sprinting, he felt when he got closer to the line, he tried to sprint harder. Where other fellas can't, they haven't got anything to sprint harder. He said a fella that can't sprint harder can't go any faster anymore. So it's the, it's the guy that tries to push himself to the very end. Is the guy that you'll get more out of. And this is exactly what they were doing. They had tactics in games, in training. They had all intensity of ground hurling, all ground hurling, breaking hurls. He brought 30 or 40 hurls in one night, and he said he wanted every single hurl broke. <laughs> I think Liam Dunn broke half of them. <laughs> John O'Connor broke the other half. <laughs> But this is what he wanted. He wanted intensity, intensity, intensity. And the players bought into it. You know, and I know for a fact, and some players know that sometimes a player is not full-hearted committed into terms of tackling fellas. You go in and you put your arm around him nice and light and soft and you might pull his jersey because you're not able to use the strength to push him off the ball. You might give away a soft free. Griffin didn't want that. He wanted Tom Dempsey. He wanted Eamon Scallon. He wanted Gary Laffin. He wanted these guys hitting him and knocking them back on their backside. So when you have words like that, a story will do it to you, Larry Murphy will do it to you, these guys will run into you and knock you over. So Griffin wanted a group of players, group of forwards, to keep doing this to the backs. Keep doing it because what's happening is forwards from other counties were hitting us and knocking us for six because we weren't getting in training, training as often as we liked it. And that's what I'm saying. The intensity was happening not because we played against Galway down in down in Turles or Cork down in Porky Creeve or somewhere like that. And you'd only experience that every two or three weeks. We were experiencing every night you went training. And you're talking about the intensity, Gary. That's exactly what we brought into it. And if it was good, and if it was fast, and if Griffin and the boys were happy, they would blow it up after 10 or 15 minutes and call a haul to us. In every training session we've had a match, was there always the first five minutes or ground hurling, was there? Yeah, there was all sorts of hurling, really, you know. Uh, there was an awful bit of a slagger match because George and a few lads would have been put onto the B team. I don't mean the B team, it would have been 15 against 15. So I'd often give a nose shout across the field, hey, George, you're on the B team again tonight. <laughs> It'd be fucking uproar. <laughs> <laughs> I remember George and Tomas Codd actually got stuck into one another and John O'Connor had to run out and jump up on George's back and Griffin was blowing the whistle that hardly nearly swallowed the whistle himself. <laughs> <laughs> he said that's what I wanted lads but I don't want it among yourselves intensity as much as possible so he was talking about plenty of fire in your belly and plenty of ice in your head especially when it comes to big games because 
If you look back at Kilkenny for the last 15 or 20 years, Tommy Welsh, JJ Delaney, Jackie Turl, them lads have saw you and have to get the ball. We only did it for a number of years in the Wexford jersey. And after that, before that, I thought we were a little bit soft. And after that, I think we went a little bit soft. I thought we tried to introduce a new style of hurling in terms of keeping possession, running with the ball, you know, where Kilkenny were still doing the intensity of hard hitting, hard shooting, where they had the fast forwards and Eddie Brennan, Michael Fenley, and these lads, Henry and all these guys. These lads would get the ball and run at you. I said, why can't our forwards do that? We have it now. Davey has introduced that to the players now. He wants you to run and take on these guys. But I thought for a period of maybe 98 to, uh, to maybe 2001 or 2002, I thought we sort of lost our way a small bit. And maybe maybe overall, uh, we had brought you in, in Joachim Kelly and stuff like that, and it didn't really work. And the sort of the, the pressure that we had in our pressure tank had been released, and the players themselves found it difficult to get the levels back up again. So we definitely needed someone to come in and they say, pump up the volume. You know, that's exactly what we needed. We need someone like maybe Liam to come back in again. A lot of our players need a good shout and a kick, a shout in the air and a kick up the backside. That's exactly what we needed. And if players go off and do at ease what they, they think is best themselves, well, we'll get nothing out of it. If you look at Kilkenny with Cody, the likes of DJ, Charlie Carter and all these guys. If he feels as if you're not up to it, boy lads, you're over. I bring in a new generation of players and let them give them the half focus that hurling needs within Kilkenny. But we have it. But we, we, we should get more out of guys. It is nice to have that conveyor belt that Cody had though. Yeah, it's savage. It's absolutely savage. You know, because it's all to do with underage success, of course, in terms of colleges, and under 21, you know, success breeds success. And you'd often ask, Kilkenny so far ahead of us in terms of skill levels and maybe ability and, and uh, you know, speed and stuff like that. I'm not quite sure whether, whether we have it in dozens of hurlers throughout the county, but we have it in a large percentage of the players. And when you win, you're inclined to get an extra 10 or 20% out of guys the next day. It's only when you start losing and losing you probably question yourself, you know, are we ever going to win? Are we ever going to be successful? And that went through my head and a lot of players from maybe 91 up to 94, 95. We just thought, it's great to be involved and it's great to participate and it's great to wear the jersey, but, you know, we'll never win anything. We'll never win that. It doesn't look like we're, we're good enough to win anything. The league finals in 93 was another prime example. We had a chance to put him Cork away, put him asleep, put him to bed. And we went home, nothing, no silverware to show for it. Only a bit of pride on the next day when it was on the newspaper that Wexford showed up and showed a bit of spirits. That was headlines on a lot of newspapers throughout them years. But to me, it wasn't good enough. And the likes of Liam Dunn, Ger Cush, George, Story, all hungry for something to happen. When Griffin came in, he organised the whole thing from start to finish. And there was no turning back. There was not one player... If there were guys in the panel prior to Liam Griffin, maybe moving the guys on, maybe he felt some of the guys that were in the panel early 90, or late 94, 95, maybe he just thought that they weren't up to scratch. Maybe he, but when you sit down with Liam and we sat down with us and planned the year ahead, it's understandable why we, why we achieve what we did achieve. Tell us then 
about winning Leinster in '96 because that that was the first bit of silverware. So, like, what what was the feeling after that? Was the feeling that finally we've done something that we've won, we've won some silverware, or was it we're not finished yet? Our first challenge was Kilkenny. Liam, in his own head, was saying to himself, "We've no problem beating Kilkenny. We beat Kilkenny. We beat Kilkenny." And I sort of looked around the dressing room and the players themselves were sort of maybe throwing their head up a small bit and maybe, maybe yes, maybe we have a great chance. Maybe, hopefully. But Liam says, I tell you, we beat these guys. We go out and do our simple thing. Do, I, do exactly what we've been doing for the last number of months. The way we have prepared ourselves. And it's only for the Kilkenny game. We got over the Kilkenny match. It was great. It was great to come back training. The relief of just beating Kilkenny in the championship. And to go back into the room. Before we went out training, Aleem would always say, what did I tell you guys? I told you you were good enough to beat them. In fact, you were good enough to beat anyone. But then we had planned for the, the Dublin match. That's when uh, James E. Brennan and Eamon Marcy had transferred to Dublin that year. So, you know, there was big expectations coming from, from them too, as well as the rest of the Dublin team. We went to Crow Park. And I say Kilkenny, our Dublin were sort of in the boat that we were against Kilkenny. They were saying, geez, wouldn't it be great to get one over, over Wexford here today? You know, wouldn't it be great to beat Wexford, you know, because Wexford have beaten Kilkenny now, so everyone has them up here thinking that, that Wexford are the kingpins now to beat. But yet, we, we, we didn't take it for granted. And Liam said, we just do exactly what we did, coming up to the Kilkenny match, preparing ourselves right, getting our head right, and go and take on Dublin. We'll get over this as well. We did. Struggle at times. But I think the way Liam and Neve and all have had us tuned upstairs, I think we really, we really believed that we were good enough to beat any team. But we had to go and do it. That was the main thing. You know, we had to get out on the field and do it. And of course, the Leinster final, I think it was the biggest challenge that Liam and the team were facing. You know, there was a lot of hype about it. There was a hype around training. You know, Liam, as I said, Neve and all these, they did all their homework. And I wouldn't keep repeating their names because they were part of this. You know, the only thing they didn't do was put the ball with us, but to help us get that journey from Wexford uh, to the throw-in. So easy in our mind. We were so relaxed about it. And, you know, that's when the battle started. When the ball was thrown in, he says, don't get too frustrated. Don't get uptight about yourself. Wait till you get out there and let the game take its, take its course. But we had rehearsed it and, and built ourselves up so much for the game that I, I personally thought that we were going to win it even before the ball was thrown in. But then after winning it, was there any fear of just being content with that? Being content with being Leinster champions after not being Leinster champions in so long? Not really, Gary, to be honest. Uh, you know yourself, yourself and Ben, you know exactly what happened. Uh, it was an incredible victory. You know, it's something with 15 minutes to go in prior games that I have played in in the past, not under Liam Griffin, but under certain other managers. We just lost our way. It was that time in the game where we were just sort of about to surrender, about to put down our guns, but put down our hurls. It looked like the opposition team had the upper hand on us. And I'm talking about the likes of Kilkenny and especially Offaly. We battled with Dublin and we battled with Leash, but when it comes to victory over the other two big teams, we struggled with it. But now we got to a stage in 96 in the Leinster final where as I said, we, we carried it right through the game and this inner belief, the self-belief that if we go out and do exactly what we did and when we got the result, it was, it was only a matter of time before we sat down with Liam after maybe a night or two of celebration 
is sit down and have a good meet about it and ask every one of us individually, are you happy with what you have? Are you happy the way the supporters are happy still in Wexford on a Wednesday night celebrating, drunk, falling around the key? Are you want to be with them or you want to head up to Wexford Park tomorrow night and go back to training and face a Galway in the, in the Ireland semi-final? And of course, naturally, the players were up for the battle. We felt as if we'd done a good job, but we felt as if we could go a little bit further. But this 70-minute thing was always said to us. We're only 70 minutes away from a victory. We're only 70 minutes away from a Leinster semi-final. We're only 70 minutes away from a Leinster in Leinster champions. And this 70 minutes carried all the way through right to the very end. And against, of course, against Limerick in the final. So this 70 minutes stayed with us. And it never left us. And every night, every night we went training, it was the same thing. Sometimes we only trained for 70 minutes. So in general, I think we were right and ready upstairs to take anyone on. But as Liam says, we had to have a right up here and we have to be prepared to put everything aside, victories, celebrations, papers, whatever you want. He says, forget about them. He said, put them in a gear bag and read it all when it's all over. Because we are only 70 minutes away from playing in an all Ireland final. It's something that you'll never, ever forget for the rest of your life. And of course, we got over that battle, which to me was one of the toughest because we didn't perform that well. I, I, I just felt after that match, the celebration among players within the dressing room was, was the greatest, loveliest feeling you'd ever get, knowing that you're coming up on the first week in September, you're going to bring 40 or 50 or 60,000 Wexford supporters to Crow Park on an all Ireland final day. You know, I remember Liam Dunn grabbed me and put his arm around me and we two, our two heads just clashed off one another. He says, is this great? Is this what we waited for all along, all our lives to play in an all Ireland final? He said, this is one we will, we will cherish Larry and we will win it. And then words from Liam Dunn, from my head to his head, carried to me, and of course it carried around the dressing room because that's what Liam Griffin and George and these guys were about, that were only 70 minutes away from being All-Ireland champions. And had you, before this was on, the final was on, already learned the words to dancing at the crossroads? I had, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was practicing it for a fair, bit, a fair bit because I knew I was going to get caught somewhere to sing it or, or try it or do something anyway, so... So when was it? Just an hour after the Leinster final? You could learn the words. Yeah, it was, it was only a short while after that. Was, my little one here, she's able to sing dancing at the crossroads as well. She's like to say. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't a long after that. You know, we were all rehearsing it and singing it. And we were practicing it. We were all getting mixed up in a few words. But eventually, 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 we, we, we myself and Tom Nemsey and a few lads got it right. So. Was it the, Wexford, the opening of the Wexford Opera House? And they got Sean Flood to sing it. How did you feel about that? I was a little bit annoyed, but if you see the video, I actually did try to get up on stage behind Sean and I took out the guitar. It was a hurl used as a guitar. <laughs> it was incredible. It was incredible. Yeah, that was right, Craig. It was brilliant. You know, but Sean, he loved it. He didn't mind it, you know. So I think it was, I think it was only two or three days before, before the All-Ireland, actually. We were down in the Shambles Car Park in Wexford where Super Value was down there by the Bank of Ireland. And I remember Des Cahill was down there with RTE. They were down doing a little build-up for the match down there. It was, it was on in the afternoon, and I was actually up on the stage singing Dancing at the Crossroads. <laughs> but see, if Liam Griffin knew about that, he'd have went mad. <laughs> I think the build-up to the All-Ireland and all the, the whole carnival atmosphere that was going on around the county 
I think the players really took to it very well and we really, really appreciated what was going on. And I, I think personally it helped the players because I don't think anyone within the team was the type of person that would like to go home and, and just lock themselves in the wardrobe, hoping that the pressure doesn't build up on them too much. When was your sister's wedding? Sister's wedding was in the build-up to the, in the, build up to the semi-final. What was, she, what was she doing planning the wedding? Did she just not have faith? <laughs> that you were going to have an Ireland semi-final to prepare for uh, well, the only good thing about it she had a wedding down in Liam Griffin's place in Ross Lair, so I wasn't too far away if there was an emergency call for me to go over and make a speech like that <laughs> uh, and you could also keep an eye on you so did, what happened with the wedding did you get to it how, how much of it did you get to I got to the, uh, the start of it I got up and I said a few words and then I turned around and said to the priest and everyone else, good luck, I'm off to training. So off I went. I was like Superman, getting out of the suit, going out the front door. I was in my Richard Frank's suit, going out the front door of the church. So <laughs> I was going on in my mind. And it was only later on that night then I actually, after training, we had a great training session down Ross Lair. And Liam came over and he said to me, if you want to go back to the sister's wedding, there's no problem. He says, go over there for a couple of hours. He said, there's no issue whatsoever. He says, we're going to have a barbecue. So he says, off you go. So I said, I'll go over anyway just to show me face. And of course, that's all it was, just to show me face. Give him a hug and a kiss and turn around and walk back out. I said, I go back to my real family. <laughs> I mean, it was just the zone that we were in and she understood everything. She went to all the matches. My family was part of me being a part of the Wexford team. As the support that they gave me was phenomenal. You were in the pub the Friday night before the game. That's right. I was actually out on the hurling wall, hurling for an hour, practicing a bit of hurling. And I drove along the quay to see what was happening. And uh, I just happened to see two or three of my friends sitting in a window in Aspel's pub in Wexford. So I just pulled up. I got out of the car and I said, Shrell Gwinsey, what a crack is. But sure, the place was thronged. It was packed to the rafters. And there was a guy down, down there called Colm Keys. He's a reporter for the Irish Independent or some of them crowd. And he happened to be at the counter. And I went up and I tapped him on the shoulder and he says, well, brother, how's it going? And he looked at me and says, what are you doing here? I said, I came in for a Lucas hit with the lads. He said, should you not be home in bed? He said, sure, it's only eight o'clock. There's plenty of time to go to bed. So I just sat down and had a Lucas hit with the guys and he couldn't believe it. He was taking a photograph and he just couldn't believe it. He just thought it was so relaxing and so chilled out. Got up then and just headed off to home. It's just something that I, I just needed that after being in the handball alley for nearly an hour solid just going through the game in my head over and over in my head in terms of what player I was on and what, what moves that you were going to make and it's more or less what Neve and Aline Griffin have been doing with us all year get your head right again get upstairs get right upstairs because the amount of distractions had been going on in the definitely in the two weeks coming close to the All-Ireland certainly can pull you away from the game itself you know because you're listening to so many people talking here you need to sort of get into the wardrobe or get into the handball alley and just get your head right and go through the things that you think are necessary on an all final day. And it sort of helped me in a sense that I couldn't wait to get out of the dressing room. I couldn't wait to get out. Me, Hollamore, heard he couldn't believe it. We were all inside. We were so relaxed, so chilled. And I was just standing at the door and he was leaving to go back to the press box. And I said, is there any chance of me getting out with you? <laughs> the whole on, Larry, was another few minutes to go. <laughs> You would have always gone to the handball alley. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I was there on Saturday night as well. I would have been there on Saturday night as well. I was there for an hour and a half on Saturday night. It's almost to you more of a psychological thing than... Psychological thing as well, I would have been, yeah, Ben. And 
just to get a little bit of practice and get a little bit of focus in go through these little things in your head you know about if you make a mistake how to get around and make a mistake because i'll make a mistake in a handball alley but not striking the ball properly or miss hitting certain target on the wall so to rehearse it and rehearse it to try and get the negative thing out of your head and try and get everything positive and you know even if you make a, a, a bad mistake in an Ireland final day you say okay next one you, say, you don't call it a negative you just say forget about it and go to the next next move or the next change whatever you need to do so it's all about making mistakes but don't see it as a mistake you were playing midfield most of the year and then you were wing back for the final would you prefer to be there or would you prefer to be in midfield it didn't really matter, to be honest. You know, to be on the team itself in general was was a great achievement itself. You know, a lot of the hard work and preparation that went in over over the number of years. You know, you'd be just happy to be handed a, a retro jersey. You know, I can never forget the day I was actually handed a, the jersey when I started. It was only a sub, and I can never forget the last day I wore the jersey. So it's one of those special moments, and I always had it. Within me, you know, my father and other people would tell you, respect the jersey that you're wearing, whether it's club or county, because that's something special because there's other people in life who'll never get the chance that you're getting. The club was fantastic, but a club, uh, uh, to, to represent your county was, was probably one of the highest and greatest honours you could ever get in terms of hurling sport in Ireland. What was the first day you got the jersey? It would have been against Clare in the National League game uh, down in Ennis. Well, it was only a sub that day, so I, I, I think it was only brought on for the last... T- t- I think Christy Gehoa actually was over us. He brought me on. So I got it for 10 minutes or whatever. So I was delighted. I was like a kid in a candy shop. I couldn't believe what was going on, but sure. Just to get out there and run around and, you know, looking up at Jimmy Hulan and John Connor and Ian McClary and all these good boys around you, big lads around you. So it was just great to be a part of it, you know. And as I say, it took a lot, a number of years after that just to get settled down and get your head right in terms of being totally committed. Club hurling is tough enough to get lads to be committed 100%. And hurling back then wouldn't be as tough. But inter-county hurling, it, was, it took a savage amount over your body and over your mind. And mostly it took a lot of time away from you, you and your family and friends. You were playing wing back, obviously. And uh, Barry Foley on the other side had scored, I think, three points in play early on. And you got moved over to him. Was that like almost a man-marking job to... Yeah, uh, back in the uh, we played Dublin as well. Actually, we played. Uh, um, Eamon Marcy was actually marking Sean Flood, and he was getting a bit of upper hand on Sean Flood. And Liam Griffin came over and he just gave me the nod and he says, "You'll go back on him and Cleary, Larry Eamon Marcy." Sorry, he said, "Go back on him, Larry, please." And which, luckily enough, you know, it did it did work out for me that day. I actually got man of the match that day as well. But it's not that I did anything spectacular or anything, but uh, you know, I curtailed Eamon Marcy and. It stopped him from getting a lot of possession of the ball. And, and you know, of course, job done and Griffin then, or they said to me after this, he says, Larry, this could happen any day, any match. We could call upon you to either go wing forward, midfield, wing back or cornerback. If we need a man marker, I think you're the man for it. Even though sometimes I felt as if I was a free hurler. I'd love to hurl free. I didn't want to chase fellas around. I wanted fellas to chase me around. But when Lima told me this to my, to, to, told me this, that it looks like we're going to have a job for you, Larry. And this is, you're going to be the chaser. And we want you to be the marker, the heavy, the fast marker, whatever you call it. And I said, yeah, I'm up for it, Liam, whatever it takes. And it was always explained to me, you know, Larry, you've, you're there for a reason. We want you to stop individual hurlers from getting the better of, uh, of our own team in general. We might use you, as I say, for, for curtailing the top hurlers. 
And he went over on him and straight away he scored another point. He did. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else uh, missed past the ball and it went over my head and I was looking at Rod Guiney because I was giving out a Rod for not, or not Rod, um, Benno or something I think it was, or Rory Mack, for not do, uh, tackling properly. And of course the ball went over my head and he tapped us over the bar and he was running back out and a fella behind me was shouting and he was looking up and he was smiling but I thought he was smiling at me and he said, Barry, enjoy your last one because you're not going to score anymore. And he sort of looked at me as if, all right, well, sure. It sort of made me more determined as well, of course, because, you know, as I say, I looked over the line and Liam says, Larry, you're too far off. But I, I was committing myself to take a ball off of someone else. And I said, no, my job is to mark him and I'll have to stop him. If, if it happens to take me out of the game, I'm doing it for the team now. I'm not doing it for myself. If it happens to take me out of the, out of the play altogether... But luckily, it didn't. Once, once I got a couple of tackles in, and he sort of, I looked at him a couple of times, and I just felt as if he he was giving up the chase. And of course, that's where I wanted to express myself. I wanted to get on with the game and get attacking in the game. Neve Fitzpatrick, she was only there for ninety six, was she? Yes, right. Yeah. And did you did you miss her then in the the years after when she was gone? Like or. Yeah, well, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the lads would say, you know, when you have your Christmas dinner, you don't like feeding eat, eating it after, after it. You know, you eat your Christmas dinner, you think you're full, and you think you're, that, that Finlayson will stay with you for, for the remainder of Christmas Day, but it doesn't happen. I obviously thought that, that she should have stayed on. Uh, it would have helped progress. Uh, younger players coming through, it would have helped hurling in general in Wexford for her to go back to maybe under 21 or minor level. We needed something like that within our county. Because it certainly helped us. Uh, she's done an awful lot, as we say, over the period of 96 with us. My kid wants me to show you something. Tell them my kid saw me on YouTube singing Dancing at the Crossroads. <laughs> <laughs> saw me on YouTube Dancing at the Crossroads. Okay. Uh, I, I watch it every night before I go to bed. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> when was it, say, after 96, when she left that? How long, what year was it then before another psychologist came into the cell? Would you see, uh, Liam was a, a great psychologist as well himself. And Liam did pay visits to us in 97. He, when Rory had taken over, we had a few meetings with Liam. And Liam would come in and bring us over to the corner of the field. Now, he didn't really take over everything. He just came in and he sat us down and asked us, you know, uh, last year is history. This is a new year. Are you still hungry? Are you still up for the fight? So he was more or less rehearsing everything that he had programmed into us back in 96 himself and Eve and he just wanted to keep that alive and keep that keep that ticking over you know we were unfortunate of course after winning the Leinster final uh, the back door had come in that year and I think we were due to uh, due to play Antrim or down I think in the Ireland semi-final so we were improving as the year was improving we were getting better we were getting stronger and of course when we came up against Tipperary I think that sort of hit us for six but it's back an awful lot, you know. We sort of lost the, as Jerlock Nan call it, the roughhouse tactics of Wexford won't work again temporarily. But I think we got shook and we lost a few injuries. I think Rod Gurney went off injured, Rory Mack went off in the second half. And we were sort of losing our way a small bit. We were losing our rag, to be honest with him as well. And we just felt as if we were the powerhouse. And it, it ended up reversing on us and they became tougher guys than we were expected to be. So I just felt we, we lost our way, we lost our battle. And it was reminding me a small bit of what happened prior to Liam Griffin and Eve Fitz coming in. Sometimes we just sort of give up because we knew there was no, no result going to happen first. 
98. You did savage training in 98 yeah. and just lost awfully with the last poke of the ball nearly. That's right. We trained hard. We, we got our mindset back. You know, everything was grand. You know, we got back on the road again. Uh, training was improving. Attitude was improving. Everything was improving. And I think maybe the celebrations of 96 was, was uh, finally leaving a lot of the players, you know, because as I say, celebrations went on for nearly a year or two after that. And, you know, sometimes you can't really help it, but sometimes, you know, when someone asks you to do something, you know, you, you say, okay, I'll do it. And if you didn't do it, I think you would have been blackguard a, a small bit. You would have been, you know, saying that you, you think you're high and mighty now. You're, you're not prepared to help out in any way. So it, it was quite tough. People themselves in general would support you, but sometimes they, they don't understand the commitment and effort that goes in. And when you're really trying to get focused on, on trying to get your hurling career back in track, because it certainly... It went off the rails a small bit in terms of giving it a hundred percent total focus and you know trying to keep the as we say pump the, the volume pumped up in your mind all the time sometimes can can drift away. You can be affected by it, and it took us a while to adapt to it. And of course, as I say, when you get a couple of victories back on your belt and you get back to training, and the pressure of the outside world leaves you alone for a while, I think then you're able to get your head focused and, and knuckle down to it. And of course, we all know toffee. I think it was a drop-in by Johnny Dooley. He actually struck the ball. He dropped it in around the edge of the square. And there was a flick on into the back of the net. And I actually broke my finger that year, my, to- my tongue. I went up to catch the ball. And there was a guy playing for Offaly called Mark Hand. was playing that day. So I jumped up to catch the ball. He pulled one way. And Liam Dunn pulled the other way. And my tongue got caught in the middle of the two hurls. And the- you can see the ball fell out of my hand. Fell down on the ground and Johnny Dooley pulled on it and it went in through a crowd of players into the back of the net. And I ended up getting a pin right through my whole finger after that. I had the ball in my hand for some reason, lean pulled another fella pulled and the ball dropped. So I take a little bit of blame that, you know, that I dropped the ball, but I had no choice because I felt as if there, were, there was a hatchet man or something trying to knock me hand. <laughs> Who do you think was more the hatchet man? The other oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know who the hatchet man is. I'll say no more. <laughs> well, a great hurler indeed. Yeah, so we were a little bit disappointed after that. We started going downhill a small bit then after that. And he probably didn't get going again until 2001, really. That's right. Turkush was in selecting then as well. I think uh, Tony Dempsey and all them were all in there. So I think there was a few new faces that came in as well. Just think in general, I think the players themselves once again sat down and said, look, at hurling itself is getting serious. The training program that laid out for players back then was getting serious. And it was either 100% in or nothing. And that's how serious it got. It took a couple of years after winning the All-Ireland for every player to be committed to it because, there was, as I said, there was loads of distractions going on. And you felt as if, you know, well, I have one in the bag. Do I need another one? So so the new generation of you guys joined the panel were very hungry and determined. Uh, they came from the under-21 that year as well. Had been a very very poor loss to Kilkenny in the Leinster final. Yeah, very, very poor loss. And then he brought them lads in, basically, to shake things That's up. That's right. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what happened. And indeed, it put new life and new energy. When you're going training, the whole thing in general was was good. Good intensity in the training. Everyone was really pumped up for it or whatever. So, you know, a lot of guys positions as well, of course. And there was a lot of us that were coming to the tail end of our career as well, but... You know, we knuckled down to it. We gave a we gave a good account of ourselves, but we certainly didn't in the Leinster final. But I think again, Tipperary in the in the quarter final, semi final, 
we, we did give a good count of ourselves. We sort of, we reminiscent the years again, back in Crow Park, giving high, high catches and plenty of fight and plenty of determination, plenty of battling. And I think that's the reason why we got a draw result out of the first game against Tipperary and unfortunately we faded away in the replay. The young lads coming through, that would have been the likes of Darren Stamp, Nicky Lambert, Rory Mallon and Trevor Kelly. How, how big was the loss of those three of those, I think, when travelling? Darren Stamp obviously stayed, but Trevor Kelly, Rory Mallon and Nicky Lambert weren't around too much longer after that. No, yeah, they, 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 they travelled off to America. They wanted to travel the world a bit and, of course... Being from Wexford, there was a lot of Wexford connections either in Boston or New York and they were always hungry for players to go over there and hurl in their hurling season over there. So they were quite quite generous as well. They would give you a few bob for going over and they'd get you a job if you looked for a job as well, of course. And young lads this, uh, back then were hungry and determined to, to take any challenge that was laid on for them and the promises that were given to them. You'd often wonder, you'd say, why wouldn't you go? You know, you're only going for six months or or a year at the most. And to me, it was a big loss to Rory Mallon, especially Nicky Lambert, not so much. I thought Rory Mallon was going to be a top-class curler. He had performed quite well in them previous games. And, you know, to me, he would have been... And Trevor Kelly was a lovely hurler as well. But I think Rory Mallon was a massive loss to his own hurling career and to the Harriers and to Wexford as well, of course. So, you know, as I said before, if you look at Kilkenny, look at Cork, look at Galway, for some reason... They're able to bring in eight and ten fantastic minors or, or under 21 hurlers straight into the hurling scene. Where we, okay, this year's minor team was quite good now, but prior to that, we'd always only bring in two or three lads into a panel. And you, if if you remember back a couple of years ago, uh, Connor McDonald was probably one of the bright, brightest young hurlers that we've talked about for years, but his name carried for about four or five years because he was the only bright hurler that we could see coming through minor grade and under 21 grade. And that's no disrespect to other hurlers that did come through as well. But he was the talk of the county. There was a lot of people throughout Ireland saying that this fellow is a future hurling star. But, you know, we should be bringing five or six lads through every year. Darren Stamp talked about, you know, he's a natural back and he always played in the backs. But in 2001, he was being forward. Did you decide yourself that you saw yourself as a forward in 2001, especially with the the two goals against Tipperary in the the semi-final? Yeah. It was funny enough, actually, when Darren Stamp was named wing forward, they said, well, he, if he's a forward, well, ain't definitely a forward, because I've <laughs> been striking the ball in him. No, it was simple enough, actually, because I was told to be a defensive role that year. I was starting midfield against Tipperary, and I was told to stay defensive. But unfortunately, my player kept going back to his defence. So I had to follow him up a couple of times, and Jerk Cush was out on the sideline shouting at me to get back, get back, or whatever. And I, I wasn't really sure what to do. And I was getting a little bit confused because I was thinking if I do go back and my man wins possession of two or three pucks, I could be in trouble in that. I could be heading towards the sideline. So I said, I, I wasn't quite sure. So I was actually glad to hear the halftime whistle go, to go over and ask him really, what is my job to do? What do you want me to do? And a little bird told me that Liam Griffin had a whisper in, in the rear at halftime and told him to put Larry into a, an attacking mode to put him going forward more so than defending and of course they said no Larry look at if your man needs to go back and defend will you go forward and attack and that's exactly what what happened and you know lucky enough that the ball broke nicely for me you know but I was sort of that player that needed to get something going in the game I was sort of 
losing my way in the game. I felt as if the game wasn't happening for me and I felt as if, geez, 2001 and getting on a bit now, you know, 33, 34 years of age, he says, well, uh, is, is my body or is my hurling starting to slow down? Is everything starting to catch up on me or whatever? So that little bit of a boost of getting up the field and scoring two goals started giving me a new lease of life for a number, another year or two at least, whatever. But, you know, to, it's hard to say this. When you're when you're hanging on the edge of a cliff, you know you do you do your living best to get back to the top as quick as you can. So I was just trying to do something to get myself psychologically back to where I, I would have loved to be, and that it doesn't happen. You know your 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 experience is everything, but when your legs doesn't carry experience. You actually did play in the forwards in or two, did you? I did, yeah, yeah. They put me actually forward. I never forget it. I played again Dublin down in the down in Turles, actually. The match was played in Turles that year. They put me in and I, I think I kicked two balls over the line. Yeah, from 60 yards or 100 yards, I think they just fell over the line, but I took credit for them anyway. And it was a little bit different, a little bit strange, you know, because it's quite hard playing in the backs all your life. And then you go onto the edge of the square, especially when you come up again, uh, Noel Hickey from Kilkenny in the Leinster final. To be quite honest, though, after the first 20 minutes, half an hour, it just felt as if Someone had, had nailed a half dozen nails into, into me back. You know, <laughs> I didn't realise how tough it was to be playing on a Kilkenny back, you know, until I, till I, till I witnessed that one anyway, you know, because he's a tough man and everyone know Noel Hickey, you know, and, and these great hurlers that Kilkenny had, you know, so I found it a little bit tough and a little bit strange, you know. At club level, I was able to get away with it, but at the county level, you won't get away with it at, at, at that level. And I think we actually played Clare uh, in Port Leash. And myself and Larry Murphy were dropped for that game. I think I think both of us might have been dropped for that game. But Tony Dempsey was over us and he actually said, Look at Larry, we're not going to play against Clare. I think it was in the qualifiers. Darren Ryan was actually full back that day. Dempsey was still in goal. Uh, I didn't really mind. I didn't really mind too much, but Tony Dempsey had the same day, uh, same year he was going for the elections, if everyone re- remembered that. He was putting his name forward, so. I think most of that game, Tony did spend most of his time going around shaking hands with the with, with the supporters and anyone he could, <laughs> hoping they hoping to get votes to, to get him over the line. But I think Jer Cush took that game by the, uh, by the scruff of the neck and and you know made a few changes. But Tony did play his part. And I'm only joking about Tony. He's a lovely guy and another great man to get inside your mind and try and get you focused on on everything that you need to get done. So they did a, they did a fabulous job. But I think on that day we we we, we crawled our way back into the game against Clare but I was only brought on maybe for the last 15 or 20 minutes but I think the game was almost with us and then all of a sudden it just slipped away and then myself I was brought in full forward would you believe it on Brian Lohan another small man I was put in full forward and when I went in Davy Fitz was playing a goal for for Clare and he turned around and said what are you doing in here? (laughs) and I said you'll know all about it I said when I catch a fucking ball I stick you in the fucking back and then with the ball as well (laughs) <laughs> you will, you will, and of course the umpire was laughing because I was laughing his own voice. <laughs> and of course someone came down then and said, "Larry, you have to go back wing back, go back in the backs." And Davy says, "Off you go now, good luck." <laughs> <laughs> so his range and I never got a shot at him, but sure, how ever. <laughs> yeah, but that was a game that we had came close to beating Clare. The ball dropped in over. Darren's head and Fitzhenry Bowden came out and Bowden clashed, if you remember, and the ball went directly into the goal. Yeah, I remember. And I think uh, a lot of heads dropped and it felt as if the curtains were being pulled across on us then, but it was sort of 
knowing to me that the journey was coming very close to an end and when you're only getting 10 or 15 minutes in, in, in league matches and championship matches, I was more or less saying to myself, it's certainly coming to the end of my career. And I really enjoyed the journey and whatever is left, whether it's a month or a year or whatever is left, coming to the end of it, I just want to see it out as best I could, you know, and, and help out as best I could with whatever players were coming through. And as you said, we had the likes of Darren Stamp and young Rory Mack and all these lovely hurlers were all there. So they were well established and there was a great battle starting among them young players and you know they, they had a good run in under 21 in 2001 so there was a little bit of fire coming from them into the into the senior panel and we were only hoping that the likes of Gizzy and Owen Quigley and all these guys that pulled through will pull something together eventually and it did it took another two years to, to conquer the Leinster final in 2004 but as I said it took a lot of preparation a lot of hard work from that group from us leaving and from the new group coming in and of course Conran and John Conran and Martin Quigley and all them guys were over over the team then and they set their stall in 2003 and I think they, they brought that victory back to Wexford and we'll never forget that great lockdown by Michael Jacob and Peter Barry that day so it was one of those days when you see Brian Cody fall to his knees punching the it's, it's, a, it's a nice thing to have it's like get your first whiskey and, and throwing it all back <laughs> You were you were back out though the next year in O three playing midfield, yeah? I was out and about. <laughs> Sometimes I feel as if I wasn't there. <laughs> I, I, I was involved as best I could, but you know yourself, I often feel as if you were coming to the end of your career that things were slipping away and you'd be doing your utmost. I was training harder. Would you believe it now? I never really told too many people this, but I would be training extra hours on my own and Gavin Boogie, that Boogie son would be a witness to this. I used to train on the railway tracks in Wexford, out past Park Ormond, and I would be sprinting out to Ferry Carrig Bridge and sprinting back on the railway tracks. I was doing all the training in the quarry, in the quarry out there by Park Ormond. I used to be running up sand dunes and rocks and stones and different levels of, uh, of strength. Whatever the sand is or the, the gravel or whatever, I'd be constantly training, running up and down them. So, as I said, I was trying to do my best to stay up to the level where I wanted to be, but... You know, these guys thought I was cracked, but I, I felt as if it's all rewarding. And this was something that was going in on in the background throughout my career. These little extra bonuses, these extra bit of training and this little bit of hardship that I was giving myself to keep on, on top of everything was, was benefiting me in general because I, I felt as if I was getting more out of the game. And I just felt as if when you get to a level, when your body gets to a certain level and your fitness gets to a certain level, you're, enjoy, you're inclined to enjoy it more. You find the pressure of chasing and hassling and not out of breath and stuff like that. You, you feel more relaxed inside. And of course, as, as we all know, 95 and 96 was a prime example for me because I was nearly running on, my to- on the balls of my toes all year. And this extra training, this, this came to keep you going at the end of your career or were you were doing that the whole... I, I was doing this, uh, I won't say throughout my career. I think only when Liam Griffin and these guys came in, I, I done, I'd done a fair bit of training with the club because I was going back and forward with the club and the, and the county. But when things got serious, when, when you were asked to get serious about, about training and, and looking after your diet and looking after yourselves or whatever, there was times where I felt as if I went training, whether it was Patrick's Park or Bon Clody or somewhere else. I was probably after having a tough day or, or something was going wrong in my head and I, I wasn't thinking about training. I was going training and my mind was somewhere else and I was under pressure from work or or other things going on and I'd often go home in the car and say 
that wasn't good enough. I, that, that training to me wasn't good enough. I, I didn't accept that training. And I'd often go back to Park Orman and do maybe five or ten laps. I'd probably do five or ten sprints from one end of the field to the other, get into the car and go home. Knowing in my own head that uh, now, now, now training was worth doing. And there was a guy out there, Nate McMahon. He was a caretaker and he used to see me doing this. And he'd often say, you're working late tonight, Larry. And I said, no. He says, what are you doing? I said, I'm just doing a bit of training, a bit of extra training. I think I need it. So he was a witness to us. You know, he'd always said to me, James, Larry, I never, I never forget you coming out here at half nine, ten o'clock at night, going to do a couple of runs or something like that. He says, I thought you were just doing it to keep yourself fit. It was just this little thing in my mind. I was always told, if you always do a little bit more than the opposition, that you, you'd always believe that you have the upper hand of them. You want to be the best, you have to do more than the rest. Exactly, and, and of course, Liam Griffin and, and Neve and these taught me that lesson. From us winning the All-Ireland back in 96, I thought to myself, now it's my responsibility to be out there, to be sharing the joys, the celebration, and everything that I got out of the game with young kids and people that uh, never got the chance that I got. I might never get the chance that I got. So it's something that you'd be proud of what you're doing and something that it's, it's a great honour to go and do coaching with young teams. I go to any team in Wexford. If anyone wants me to go and do a coaching session with any of their teams, I would do it free of charge. I've never charged anyone to do a hurling session. Never. From the day I was asked to do it back from 94, 95 onwards, I never charged anyone. So I'm always free to go and do that to anyone. I would even go to someone's house if a young lad wanted to put a ball around the back garden with him. You could be getting yourself in trouble here now. No. <laughs> no, I, I, I tell you, I'm, I, I've done this for the last number of years. I've been in different clubs, just going up to do a couple of sessions with him. No problem whatsoever. I love doing it. And it's all about giving back. You have to get an Excel sheet now with the amount of requests you'll get. There's no problem. I have no, I have no issue in, in whatsoever. I just love doing it. I do it with my own club, and I just love going out and helping teams, especially teams that find it difficult. You know, with a small group of players that they can't really get a panel of 24, 25 that they're struggling with panels of seventeen or eighteen, and and half of them are playing football, and the other half are not interested in football. It's them guys that I like to get inside and talk to them. And, just educate them how important it is to play both codes until you come to a stage in your life where you say, right, hurling is for me or football is for me. You can continue both of them. But as I said to a young guy today, there's a time in life when you become 17 or 18 years of age and you're going to be an inter-county hurler or footballer. He's, he's a fantastic dual player. But I said, you'll have to make a decision at this stage in your life when you become asked to join one of these panels. What do you need more? So where are you going to go? So you have to decide in your own mind where you want to be or where you're going to go. So it's in his own hands, really. You know, so you have a great future, but as I said, there's a lot of guys that would give it the same amount of time and commitment, but they don't get the opportunity of going to play county. And is it just the young lads' houses that you might go and puck the ball around with or do you want to come over? <laughs> do you want to come over to my house sometime? <laughs> 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 I'd love to put the ball around with you, Larry. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're free to come over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bring a pun of the sandwiches, I don't mind. Yeah. Or a pun of the strawberries. <laughs> so you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't particularly look back that fondly on O3? You don't feel you were um, contributing that much? 
No, I, I feel as if I, I, I was contributing an awful lot, all right, but I just feel as if, you know, personally, I just feel as if it was slipping away slowly but surely. And as I say, when, when you feel as if you're, you're, you're running on empty and you're, you're trying hard and you're working hard and you're trying to get back up to the level where you think you should be, you feel inside your mind that you, you're, doing, you're giving it your living best. But, you know, a few people that say to me, Jay's Larry, you're starting to slope a small bit. You're not the player you used to be. And I says, I know that, but sure there's, there's 15 years or there's 10 years in the difference now. So it's only a matter of me or a matter of the, their opinion getting inside my head as well and, and saying that, you know, you are coming to the end of your day. So in my own head, I was thinking that I'm okay. I, I can cope with it. I can carry on with it. But when people tell you and, and you know, you're not seen as if you're, you're contributing, uh, enough to the team you'd often feel as if maybe someone else is better off doing it but you'll give it your best shot and my best shot is what I'm given I'm happy with that and if the selectors and manager are happy with that I, I, I'll do with that but personally inside I feel as if if, you're, if you can't give it all and if you're not giving as much as you think you should be given well then I think it's make, to make room for someone else and hopefully they'll, they'll fill your boots You did um, did you come back in all four in the winter? I did I came back in all four in the winter uh, it was funny enough, actually, it was in October when I started training myself. I used to r- run 5K every night, right up to December. I never drank all over Christmas. I never drank right up along. The National League was starting, and I felt as if I was in good shape, and I was coming back a small bit myself, and I felt as if I was happy because what I was doing in my own head, I was starting to give myself a second chance to redeem myself and do a little bit more than what I had done maybe prior to 2003, to get more out of me in terms of getting more play time because I trained to play. I don't train to be a sub. So I was just trying to do a little bit more and I know players within the camp themselves were, were still on the gargle and they weren't asked to stay off the gargle, of course. They were just going to cut back on it and take it easy or whatever. But there was a time then when when the training was getting tougher and these new training programs were brought in and new trainers were brought in and I just found going a little bit tough there was a guy called Jim Keelty who was brought in to train us and his training system and training program was was sort of getting the better of me as well and I was giving him my best shot but I just found it tough when I was going home in the car or when I go home to sit down that my legs and my back can all break in me and I just found it felt as if yeah the pressure is coming on me a small bit now but I was still taking the cold ice cold bats I was still giving myself massages outside of other guys massaging me down and stuff like that but I just felt as if you know the end was getting near I just felt as if you know these young lads in training were starting to leave me behind instead of me lapping them they were lapping me and I just felt as if the time that was given to me was getting shorter and shorter every time and I remember we played Tipperary down in it was in Tipperary but it wasn't actually in Turles I can't remember where it was now and John Conran asked me to warm up the team yeah, I said, yeah, no problem, John. He says, if you give me 20 minutes, I'll warm up the team. We played Tipperary. I warmed up the team. and you know, Myself and Hopper McGrath were just sitting in the dugout. And, uh, oh, I think there was about 20 minutes gone in the game or something like that. Or Sorry, about 40 minutes gone again, 50 minutes. And I think uh, Tipperary had, were beaten by about 20 points. But he asked me to warm up and he asked Hopper to warm up. And I said, look, I said, put Hopper on, John. I says, 15 minutes if you don't go to me, I says, Give the young lads a chance. Give them a run out. No problem. He did. But I just felt as if that was it. 
my time was getting closer and closer. I was, I won't say I was getting pushed out. I just felt as if I was taking myself on that journey as well. But I needed someone to tell me, Larry, would you goddamn call it a day? You give it your life. You give it your whole career. You can't give it anymore. Accept it. That good things must come to an end. And of course, we sat down and we had a meeting and we spoke about it. Even though I would have liked to play a small part maybe in hanging around with the team for the remainder of the year. But, you know, they decided, no, Larry, I think it's time to say your chapter has closed. Thank you for the greatest journey you have given us as management and the greatest journey that you've given your supporters and Wexford supporters over the years that you've, you've given. You've given it all. Be proud of what you've done. And thanks for everything. And it just felt as if my eyes were closing for death. Because I walked out of the dressing room, I probably never cried as much from the dressing room, the meeting room, to my car. I just felt as if this is it, it's all over. I'm done and dusted. Barry Goff was actually training with us that night. He was sitting in the car. And as we drove down along the road, I was dropping Barry to his girlfriend in Oilgate at the time. And he says, what's wrong, Larry? You don't, you don't sound yourself. You're not bubbly, Larry, like you were coming up. He said, what's up? And I says, Barry, Larry has left the building. Larry is finished. My time is over. He got emotional. He got emotional because he was saying, Larry, you're my greatest friend, greatest hurler I have ever had with. You couldn't be the nicest guy to ever hang around with. You're a great club man. The lads love you. There's a great way about you. And that's why the people love you. And that to me really sort of made me sit up a small bit in the car. And I was delighted for him to say something like that to me. But when he got out of the car in Oil Gate, it became that lonely journey all the way home, back to the flat where I lived on my own. And I didn't know what was going on in my head, but I just pulled in outside a Furry Carrick Hotel and I actually rang Liam Griffin to say that the management and myself decided that it's the end. And of course, Liam must have sat up in his chair and he told me to sit up in my driving seat and listen to what he had to say. And his words were remarkable. The way he spoke about me, the way he told me what I had achieved and what I had done, I felt relieved. I felt delighted. I felt happy. I felt the sad, the tears that were sort of hit me first were tears of sadness and as I said, nearly the debt. My eyes were closing for debt. But it was only t- uh, tears of emotion and leaving something that you loved behind. That's all it is. He said, life will carry on. You'll become a local hero. He'll probably put a statue of you in Wexford somewhere. He said, someday, Larry, you'll be talked about for the rest of your life. People loved you. We loved you. We all loved you. No matter where you went. He says, Muhammad Ali loved him when he met you. Tom Hanks loved when he met you. He says, sure, what more could you ask for? He says, go and enjoy the rest of your life. You deserve it. But only a short time after that, Martin Story rang me. He said the same. Tom Dempsey rang me and George O'Connor rang me. So Griffin had planned for them players to ring me, just have a little chat. 
and I was sort of getting a little bit worried there because I, they must have got scared that I was thinking of something different in my own head. But <laughs> all I wanted was a little cheer up, a little bit of, say, good man, Larry, well done or whatever, you know. And they exactly, they did that. So home, put my gear bag in, put my feet up, opened a bottle of whiskey, uh, opened a, a cigar that I had bought back in 97 in America when I was on tour, a small little cigar I bought it as a souvenir. I opened it up, I had a whiskey, I lit a cigar, took a couple of puffs out of it, put it back out. And I said, the time is now. I'm, re- I'm retired, I'm finished. It's time to hang up the boots. It's like the ending to Independence Day. <laughs> very same. But I found it harder the next day when I rang my parents to tell them the very same. As they were my closest buddies in terms of go to the matches, support you all the way. All, all of those things, it was another thing that I had to explain. And I know if I'd had to ring him, ring him that night after I had spoke to Liam and all that, I, I, I'd have been in a different state of mind. I don't know why I should have been like that. I should have been just a normal guy saying, man, that finished. The light is great to be back to life again. But I, I took it to heart and I just felt as if give me your whole career, give me your whole life to it. And what I'd done through that whole career in terms of loving the jersey, the passion for it and the support that I got from within the family. So it was all of that. That was the next day. And of course, the media had rang then and when they found out about it, it was just to say thanks to mum and dad for everything that they did for me. It was just a journey, not only a great journey that I had playing hurling for Wexford, but they were part of the journey that they brought me to this because only for them, I said, I wouldn't be here. They, give me, they have given me this thing in life that, that you'll cherish forever. And they were so proud of me of what I'd done. Was, I was so proud of them for what they had did for me. So it was great to finish up on that, you know. And then all the plaudits came in after that, then through the media and friends texting you and ringing you and stuff like that. So I was over a little bit of downhearted at the time it all happened. But it wasn't long after that that my chin was back up again and going out and having a few drinks, talking about old times, meeting the old characters that I never met for a long time because of not going to the pubs, staying away from the pubs and stuff like that when you were training and trying to stay totally focused. I would have been a sort of, as lads would know, I'd love to go out, I'd love to have the banter, have the crack, get involved with a couple of sing songs, tell a few jokes. I missed all that because of the through the hurling career. But I used to get a small bit of it every now and then when you were knocked out of the championship or something like that. But overall, as I say, to get back and to beat all them guys and to get back into their life, you know, to get back in with your friends, and to go on, uh, back to do a little bit of socialising and still continue on in your, your club career was was phenomenal. So, you know, you can say I had a great journey and a, and a great trip through all of it and I enjoyed every moment. And I, I, I don't think I ever fell out with one. And that's one thing that sticks with me. From the 17 or, or, sorry, the 18 or 19 years that I was involved, I never fell out with one player. Never had a row with any player. No matter on holidays, or no matter in training, or no matter in matches. The only time I had a run, maybe would have been leaned on on occasions when I had to mark him in the club championship. But that to let, that's just to let him know that I was boss, that he wasn't boss. <laughs> I had to wear a dustbin lid over my hand every time I went up. <laughs> <laughs> what would Muhammad Ali say if we were able to ask him? What would he say about you? Uh, well, it's funny enough, actually, because... The night before I actually met Muhammad Ali, we had to go down the bear with a few lads, Joe Cairns, Seamus Cavanagh, 
and I think Tommy Kehoe. So there was four or five single guys on the trip. So we went out for a couple of late beers after the guys had been out prior with us. So we decided to stay out late and go out to see what was happening in the, in the wildlife of San Francisco. So we went off and we had a few beers and a bit of crack and a bit of fun. And the next morning we weren't able to get out of bed because of hangover or whatever, or late night getting in. So the message came to the rooms that we need to get up, that the bus was leaving for Alcatraz. What year was this? In 97. It would have been uh, January, the end of January, early February 97. This is the trip on to America. This is the team holiday so after winning the All-Ireland. Exactly, yeah. That was a fantastic holiday. Absolutely amazing trip. A trip of a lifetime now was... Just super, super indeed, you know, to go on a journey like that with all your buddies that you're just prior after winning it all it was, was something special as well. But it was the next morning that we couldn't get up. So Griffin gave up ringing the room. He said, that's it, lads. You get your own way down. So eventually we got up and we had breakfast and we got the taxi down to, down to the wharf. When we got down there, the, the boys were there, but they were too far ahead of us in the queue. So we had to join the queue when we got there. But unfortunately, when we got to the gate, that the boat was full. So we had to wait till a trip in the afternoon to take us out. So we went off looking for breakfast, you know, the odd pint of Guinness or a bottle of Heineken and a, and a sausage and a rasher in the Irish bar. So we actually were in the Irish bar and Joe Cairns was there. There was a few people had gathered up outside and he says, well, there's, there's a limo go by. So we all looked and we saw a big black limo going by the, 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 the pub where we were in, the Irish bar. And of course, Joe Cairns went over to find to see what was happening. And within 50 yards away from where we were, uh, the limo stopped and pulled in, pulled in. And of course, Muhammad Ali got out of the limo. And Joe Cairns ran in. He says, lads, you won't believe it. Muhammad Ali is out there. And I said, go away, Joe. I said, stay off the beer, Joe. You had enough to drink. <laughs> and he kept screaming, it is, it is, it is. So we, we had to believe him because he was screaming so loud. And we eventually went out and uh, seen him. We all ran over. There was a group of people after gathering around him. And of course, we all tried to sneak our way into him. And I eventually snuck my way in close enough to him. And we all shouted at him, Ali, Ali. And I just started shouting, Ireland, come on, Ireland, Ireland, Dublin, Crow Park. And he turned and he looked over and he started to put his hand up. And I was delighted. And I was, oh, Ali, on Ireland, on Ireland. And I started shouting. You know, and I, I said to you, man, can I get a photograph? And the fellow with him, his bodyguard said, yeah, yeah, no problem. So I went in and I put my arm around him and got the photograph taken. As I say, I have the photographs here to prove that. You know, to meet him it was, was fantastic. You know, and I, I just said to him, you know, Ali, you're the greatest, you're the greatest. And he just turned around and he says, Larry, he says, I was the greatest. He says, but you're the greatest now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I did, I just said it to him, you know, he, he, was, he was a shook man at the time, you know. I just, I just said he was the greatest. You know, and Ireland loved you. And stuff like that. So we had a great banter and a great bit of fun. But it was only for a few minutes we were we were told to move on and get on with yourselves. And it was just a fantastic moment. And of course, I ran in and got the films developed in, in, in a shot in a chemist. And of course, I was waiting for him when Griffin and all the boys were coming back in from Alcatraz. I was up on the pier and I was jumping up and down like that. And Griffin says, What's wrong with Larry? He's gone mad again. <laughs> oh, so that's no difference. He's like that since he got on the trip. When he came in, then I told Liam that I had met, met Muhammad Ali and he told me, Larry, stay off the drink. He says, you had enough to drink. He says, leave it alone. And I said, seriously, seriously. So I ran back to the chemist. They got on the bus. They went back to the hotel. And some of the pictures came out lovely. So I got some of them enlarged. And when I went back up to 
the hotel then. I brought him in and showed him. And Griffin says, it's an amazing, he says, two greats meeting one another. <laughs> that's, what, that's all he said. You talked about one of your favourite memories being back in Wexford Town for the homecoming and inviting all the team up by name. Is that just something about being in Wexford Town, your town, and having the being able to present them to all your all your brothers? Yeah, it was quite remarkable, to be honest. You know, uh, we all know about the journey coming home in terms of Wicklow, Arklow. Uh, Gorey was phenomenal. Um, Ferns was excellent. There was a little place called Clock on the way before Camolan. So all the way, oh, we, we had a fantastic homecoming right through. You know, there were some large clouds, uh, crowds, and there were small crowds and little villages and stuff like that. But in it was quite excellent. But coming back home then, back up by the race course in Wexford and all the way back down over, um, by down by Dunn Stores, coming back over that journey, uh, in front of the bus, they had a big, a big dragon. And coming from the dragon was a flame, but also a, a fire of smoke. And the smoke was just blowing all over the place. And when the smoke disappeared, we were almost coming into the crowd. It was phenomenal. It was really, really fantastic. Whoever planned it, it was amazing now to come unknown where you were going and all of a sudden you're in, in the middle of a crowd of maybe 40,000 people. You know, and then it was great to travel here uh, up on the stage. Just uh, the mayor welcomed him in and a few people had a few words and then Liam Griffin came over and he says, Larry, um, would you do the honour in uh, introducing the team to, to the crowd? So I said I would love to do it. So it was quite emotional as well, you know, uh, coming home to your home team and everyone shouting your name, screaming, Larry, Larry, Larry. So it was trying to hard to get yourself focused, but eventually when we got a bit of quietness and whatever, I got around to naming the team from number one to number 30 or whatever, and the management and whoever was involved. So it was, it was a, a lovely feeling knowing that you're, you're back in your home turf and you're getting the opportunity of introducing, as I call, the band of brothers, the people of Wexford that supported them and throughout... It was, it was, they were delighted, they were over the moon to, to know that they waited a long time because the, the, the chaos of trying to get into Wexford was a bit crazy, it was a bit mad. But uh, eventually we got there and the celebrations after that was, was phenomenal. I remember actually, I think we went out to the ferry carry, we got a civic reception that night at uh, two o'clock in the morning, would you believe it? Ferry Carrick Hotel. And after that, when it was all over now, of course, lads were getting a bit tired now and they had a few drinks, but they were getting a bit tired. But I didn't bother going to bed at all because I was so hyper and I had a few drinks. But in the morning, the boys woke up and the builders were working on the scaffolding outside the Ferry Carrick Hotel. Mm. And I was actually outside sitting on the scaffolding singing, dancing at the crossroads to the building. <laughs> <laughs> And the boys were trying to drag me in through the window. I said, how would you get out there? I said, I haven't got a clue. But sure, the boys said, the boys love it. The boys, <laughs> all the builders were dancing and all the way. And I was dancing at the crossroads. <laughs> Safety back there, I tell you. How did the nickname The Brother come along? It was funny enough, actually, uh, we got beaten in 95. When Griffin was over us in 95, we got beaten. My brother, Stock Welsh, he would be a brother of Sack Welsh who played for Wexford. There was three or four of them lads decided to go on holidays out to Santa Ponza. But they were giving me stick because I wasn't able to go because, because of hurling naturally. And I wasn't quite sure 
if Wexford would have won, would it, or if, if, if the game would have been a draw, being a replay on the following week. So I couldn't book anything. So when Wexford had got beaten, uh, my friend stopped rang me and asked me how we, how we got on and stuff like that. And I told me we were beaten. He said, what's your plan? So I'm going down to Travel Easy and I'm going to, book a, I'm going to book a holiday. He said, are you coming out to us? I said, I am. I said, I need to get a break. I need to get away. So that's exactly what I did. Went up, booked a holiday, went out the next day to meet the guys because there was no club. The club hurling was offered another two or three weeks. So I went away to meet the guys. My brother actually didn't realise I was coming out, so it was a surprise for him. So when we went out, my friend stopped, picked me up in the airport, went back to the apartment about four o'clock in the morning. My brother was asleep in the bed and I got in the bed beside him. <laughs> and he woke up the next morning and he didn't know what was after happening. He didn't realise what was happening. He said, what are you doing here? I says, come on. I said, Mam is looking for you. What's wrong with you? So he says, I'm on holidays. He said, no, no, you're back home. So we had a bit of a crack anyway. He knew I was only joking with him. But when we arrived down on the beach that morning, that morning actually, we went to the beach. And we were just laying off on the beach. And they all had a hangover, but I wasn't. And of course, there was a guy who walked by on the front of the beach and he was selling pineapples, coconuts and bananas. And I just put my hand up and I says, hey, brother, over here. So he came over and he sat down beside me, hey, my brother, how are you, my brother? Not too bad. So I got a bit of stuff off him. Every day, every evening, every morning, and every, and every evening, I should say, he come over to us every day. And he used to come along the beach and he put his hand up. We might see him. And he said, hello, my brother. So he come over and he sit down with us. So we used to bring him up for a few drinks in the evening time with us. And we'd go for a meal or something like that. He was telling us he had five wives. And I asked him, is there any chance of one of them? <laughs> he said, no, no. He said, they're back home. He says, Nigeria. He said he was from Nigeria. Every day we used to meet, we call each other brother. Brother, everything was brother. Every brother this, brother that. So we had great fun for the week. And of course, when we came back and all the training started with Dean Griffin and everything else, the first thing that we mentioned at the meeting was, how are you, brother? Liam was sort of saying, what was that? I walked in by him and he said, what was that? I said, nothing. You all right, brother? Yes, brother. Okay, brother. So all of a sudden, brother just kicked off within the camp and everyone was brother to me. So Aleem said it was the greatest expression of award that you could carry among a group of players that were, were battling for success, a band of brothers. And he says, he said, it worked out fantastic, worked, worked out marvellous. And he said, it even worked out better, Larry, because you're the character that brought it into the dressing room. Yeah. And you're the character that can deal with that. Joking with lads, calling lads, you know, brother, come over here, brother, this, brother, that stuff. So it was just, it was just something nice to have. I'm something different. And Liam Griffin just thought it was, it was a special, special word among a special group of players. Brilliant. And now you are Larry, the brother of Gorman. That's him. And you really took off with Marty Marcy. He would always introduce you as Larry, the brother of O'Gorman. Yeah. Oh, Marty is right one. Marty's a lovely guy as well. So those two hurlers of the year in 96, wasn't there? There was the Texaco one that you won. Yes. And there was a GPA one that Martin Story won, was there? Yeah, the, the, yeah, the Gaelic Players Association. Yes, that's right. So who was the real hurler of the year? Oh, there's no question about it. And it wasn't Story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading, was there, was there actually three, no? And you won two of them. Two stars, the Star Newspaper, or the Irish Independence, yeah. Ah, ah well, that settles it. And, and I, got, I got the London, the London, the Irish London Sports Star award as well. 
So I was invited over to London to go over there. Imagine that. Myself, Lee McHale from Mayo, he got footballer of the year. And I was sitting with Brendan O'Carroll, Mrs. Brown's boys. Imagine me and him at the one table. I put him in his place for a few jokes anyway. <laughs> yeah, so that was a great trip away as well. So I know, look, it's, it's a great honour in itself, you know, to, to, to win the individual awards was fantastic and win an All-Star was fantastic as well. But, you know, when you look back on his history, in 20 years' time, you ask who won the All-Ireland back in 25 years' time, who won the All-Ireland back in 96? Wexford. Because we're talking about it, we're able to name Hurler of the Year or All-Stars within Wexford. But if you ask someone in Cork or Galway, who won the All-Ireland in 96? Wexford. Who got Player of the Year? Not sure. Yeah. But only Wexford would know all this. It's a great honour. And of course, you know, there was, there was top-class hurlers on that Wexford team throughout the year. I think it's only when you perform closer to the final that you're, you're, you're picked up a little bit more by the media. They're inclined to, you're, you're inclined, they're inclined to focus in on you a little bit more. And of course, being me, uh, the media loves to come out to you a small bit for interviews and stuff like that. So sometimes that helps you as well in the sense that, you know, you have an easy way about you and they'll always give you a little pat on the back even though you might deserve it. Who was the best hurler that you've ever played with? I'd say without a shadow of a doubt, it has to be Liam Dunn. There's no question about it. Uh, George O'Connor is uh, a warrior. If there's ever a warrior that ever wore the Wixer jersey, would be George O'Connor. There's no question about it. Liam Dunn is a warrior, but he's an amazing character, an amazing hurling. And he have proven it year in, year out. Unfortunately, on some occasions, that he got the benefit of the doubt. And there's other years that he didn't get it, where he, he, he faced red and he had to walk for it. And that's understandable. But for a guy in small in stature, but his heart was as big as a rock. There's no question about it. To me, Amy Fitzhenry is another top-class man. Top-class goalkeeper, top-class individual as well. So, But I think overall, Liam Dunn, to me, would be one of my favourites of all time. I'll never forget him. The time we did battle together, remember, he wasn't 60 yards apart or 80 yards apart. Like brothers, strapped to one another. And we would, we would encourage each other. We would battle together for one another. We would look out for one another. And I think that's, 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 that's the reason why I choose, chose him as a, as a great warrior to come out. And when you're down on your knees and they come over and he whisper something in your ear to get up, you're not dead, so get up. That's when you know you have a fella back in you. And who was the toughest opponent you've ever had to mark? Very strange. Uh, at Indra County, your man Johnny Dooley from Offaly was a was a quite a quite natural, skillful hurler, but he was quite he was hard to mark because he was on the move all the time. A lot of ball was played through him as well, so you had to be totally focused on him. Occasions occasionally I had to mark John Power, so he would be the rawest of them all. You know, you'd be better off bringing a shovel out every time you go to Marathon. <laughs> you know, because he was hard, hard to break, hard to crack. You know, but of course, we all know DJ Carey. I marked DJ Carey for 40 minutes one time and I held him scoreless. So that's my claim to fame. What happened in the other 30 minutes of the game? <laughs> uh, 
Brian Coy, uh, they took him off of me actually. They were scared in case he'd have to, I'd, I'd be after retiring him so early. <laughs> but I remember my friend actually ringing me up the, the day before to say he knew the Wexford team and he saw the Kilkenny team and he says, uh, you looking forward to it tomorrow? I said, I am. He says, well, I have a bit of bad news for you. I said, what's that? He says, you're marking DJ Carey. I said, I think after ringing the wrong person, you should have rang DJ. <laughs> <laughs> but the greater the challenge, the better you feel inside anyway. You know, you have to give yourself that challenge, you know. And sometimes if you're going into the unknown, that's a little bit scary, you know, in terms of, in your mindset, right? When you're up for the big challenge, you're on the bigger guys, sometimes you're, you're in a better frame of mind and you perform better if things go right, in your, right for you on the day, of course. And what sort of hurl did you use? I started off using a, a Mick Mac. Laz wouldn't really know him, though. He's from Cross the Bay. I used a hurl with him up to minor, and then I moved over to Albert Randall hurl. And then after that, then, uh, I moved to a Philip Doyle hurl. So I was using the Lash Galore. It was Philip Doyle's father first, and then Philip. I, I stayed with Philip's Do- Philip Doyle's hurl after that because I felt as if the, girl, the hurl was nice and smooth and, and proper in my hand. You feel a good balance in, in, in the hurl in your hand. And I just felt as if it's key important as well, of course, to any youngster that's going out to play hurling to make sure that the hurl is balanced right, it's the right size, it's the right weight, and the right uh, right thickness on the handle as well, because a lot of fellas go out, and especially at underage, and, and they make a lot of mistakes. But that's one thing I was always told about. Liam Dunn always told me to make sure you have the right hurl. You have the right hurl in your hand, you have the right tool to do your job. If you were to pick one player to go to war with, who would it be? It'd be definitely Liam Dunn. And I say Jared Cushion wouldn't be too far behind him. I'd bring John O'Connor as well, just in case there's any lads lying around that he'd do away with the rest of them. <laughs> Yourself and Liam Dunn must have talked about these before you did them. Uh, we actually talked an awful lot. I haven't spoken to Liam now in a long time, would you believe it? The last time I spoke to him when we played a charity match down in Waterford. Just something that myself and Liam carried between us. Now, and Liam would be great friends of Jared Cush. Liam would be good friends of Dara Ryan and all these guys. But for Liam and me, I remember in, in San Francisco, sorry, in Vegas, Las Vegas, Liam decided one night, he says, Larry, um, why don't we take a break from the crowd? He says, why don't we go for a drink ourselves? And I said, are you sure? He said, yeah, come on. We get a taxi. We go somewhere. So we got a taxi. We went off to a, a, a pub that has pool tables. We went off for four or five hours we played a couple of games of pool and we just had a great chat about about the great memories that we had you know the great journey that we went on and the journey, the journey that we, we spent through 1996 with you know that was a special journey because it was the closest that a team have ever come together you know where back in the state there was always a little bit of bitching going on there was always fellas not nice to one another fellas wouldn't be sweet talking to one another fellas might not even pass the ball to one another fellas wouldn't even give you a bit of shampoo back there when you were in the, in the shower so how things change over a number of years and that little bit of as I say the camaraderie the friendship the bond really cracked it I think that I think that played a major part in terms of Wexford being successful in 96 you know what I think it's a pity we actually didn't do a video of the 96 journey the things that were going on that people wouldn't really see in terms of training fellas down on their hands and knees pulled back up by the back of the neck you know pull up by the jersey and say get up we're not over yet. Keep going. The battle is not over. All these little things that were going on in the dressing room among players, fellas driving each other on. 
you know, fellas determined lifting weights where you, you struggle to get the weight off the ground and a fella come over and lift, help you to lift the weight off the ground. All those things that went on among the players, the friendship of sharing things together, a bit of, a bit of banter, a bit of slagging. You know, the time uh, Tom Dempsey got knocked out, I know Tom don't like talking about it, but it was just something special that happened one night in training, you know. And it was funny enough, just before got to, uh, Tom got stretchered, we were actually uh, doing, there was three of us in the group. One was doing weights, one was on recovery, and the other one was doing the pull-ups on the wall. So when you finish your tree circle, whatever you were doing, you move on to the next line. So we were almost the last line. So Liam Griffin was actually waiting on us to go into the room to cool down. But there was a little bit of a boxing exhibition going on. And it wasn't an exhibition. It was a boxing that you get in with Sean Collier. So he'd give you a little bit of a toughness, you know, at the end of it before you go and have your shower. And of course, we were doing the pull-ups. And John did the pull-ups. And then George did it. And I actually went against George. And I actually beat George. But George wasn't happy. But Griffin was calling us to get, come on in, into the other room, into the other room. And George wouldn't give up. And George got back up on that bar and he did his living best just to better me by one. And that, to me, was the prime example of a fella trying to be a winner at all costs. And that's why I'm always saying George O'Connor, to me, I, I, I'll never be as grateful to him when I joined the panel as well because he was the guy that dragged me around the field. He's the guy that was looking over his shoulder at me, always saying, where are you, Larry? Come on, Larry. He says you're going to beat me tonight, Larry. Where are you, Larry? In these long runs, and I'm talking about runs for 40, 50 minutes or 60 minutes of a run that we would be would have been sent on around Patrick's Park and the showgrounds. And there was a time then when I did get the better of George. And when I was running by him, I sort of turned around and looked at him. And he just says, on you go, brother. Don't let no one stop you because I won't be able anymore. He Last time you've spoke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he went, he, I never seen him anymore. The only time I met him after that was sitting down in the dressing room. <laughs> he wasn't able to keep up with me. I don't. Uh, as Tom Davis listens to this, I wonder. I, I'll also remind him of the time he got knocked out because when we went into the dressing room, into the changing room near the end of it, he was actually in the boxing ring. And there was about... 40, 35, 40 people around the ring looking at Tom Sparr and Sean Collier. And of course, Tom thought he was great. Two hands up in the air doing the alley shuffle. <laughs> Sean Collier turned around to look at the crowd and again, he turned back Tom Dempsey had snuck in and him a red box up in the nose. There got tick. And within five seconds, Tom was knocked out cold. And I threw the towel in over Tom's face. <laughs> 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 and he said, what, he said what made it worse he didn't mind getting knocked out or he didn't mind getting the towel thrown in he says it's only when he looked up he says story lean done and whatever we're looking down on him they were staring down on him he said that was the most embarrassing part of it all <laughs> thanks for giving us so much of your time Larry no problem a pleasure I must say a pleasure great crack privilege for us thanks a million Larry yeah so that was our podcast with the brother what a man. Shane Tompkins unfortunately couldn't make it. He apparently got a bad haircut over lockdown and he's considering legal advice at the minute. We'll be back with a new podcast in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, if you could like, share, retweet, tell your friends, that'd be great. Thanks for listening. Most importantly, I'd like to thank you the people of Wexford. 
We'll stop with us to take a pace. All right, Wexford. 